So we've not only lost hemp for fiber, we've lost the actual manufacturing for all oils in this country. And it's just a very deregulated industry that usually it benefits off of and profits off of countries that don't have any labor laws or minimum wages. And so it allows for product to be made and then imported in here and sold at XYZ prices. And then if it doesn't sell, like it's incinerated or goes to the landfill and there's just no regulation. So where I see hemp falling into this place is like we have a linear supply chain that's deregulated, but with hemp, we have the opportunity to show what that process actually should look like that it doesn't currently operate under. And that's what drives me and the vision and pushes me is because of the social environmental impact of the current industry. And that I guess maybe that is putting too much on him that I think hemp could be able to say, here's how it's currently being done, but we're going to show you how it should be done. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I hope your July is off to a toasty start. We are officially in triple digits land here in Central Texas and Y'all, my favorite time of day is going for a walk before the sun even comes up. It is that hot outside. But I feel like I say this, and before we know it, it will be Christmas, but please don't shoot the messenger. There are a few events coming up that I have on my radar. First, I'm going to Champs in Las Vegas in a few weeks. Champs, for those of you who don't know, is a counterculture buying show, meaning you have to own a retail dispensary, vape shop, smoke shop, etc. to attend. And think of the vendors as people selling bongs, paraphernalia, and certainly lots of hemp-derived cannabinoids. Specifically, I'm really curious to see what the trends are going to be this time around. Vegas is the largest Champs show, and the last time I attended Champs was in Orlando back in 2021, and it was very Delta 8 THC heavy. So again, I'm really curious to see what will be promoted at this event coming up in a couple of weeks. So if you're going to be in Vegas, let me know. I would love to link up while I'm in town. And then a couple other events on my radar on the West Coast. Upcoming is going to be the Cannabis Drinks Expo. They are having an event in San Francisco late July, and then they'll also be doing a fast follow in Chicago in early August. Honestly, I'm trying to get out to one of them, but to be determined, I find this category of cannabis beverages so fascinating. It's clearly very popular, although I did just see this and wanted to make a note. I saw this on LinkedIn. The GM at Can was stated saying, quote, not a single cannabis company is profitable at scale, end quote. And he quantifies scale at 100 million. But he goes into the reason for that is because of the legalities and how you can and can't distribute depending on if you're on the regulated side versus the hemp side, etc. But regardless, it's a hot market. And especially with my recent observations about a handful, it feels like more and more every day of well-known cannabis brands like Can and Wink, specifically in the beverage space, are leaning into the hemp-derived cannabinoids. So I've certainly been doing a lot of content around that topic. 
If you want to read more, you can head over to tobebluntpod.com and check out some of my thoughts. But as such, I've definitely started seeing these hemp-derived THC beverages pop up across the United States. There's one operator in particular up in Minnesota, Jason Dayton. He was a recent podcast guest. I encourage you, if you have not listened to his episode, it is super fascinating for a deep dive on not only Minnesota's cannabis market, specifically as it pertains to low-dose THC beverages, but just cannabis beverages in general. And he actually posted a picture of his beverage brand, Trail Magic. Get this. It was being sold in a Whole Foods in Minnesota, and it was featured alongside Can. So Whole Foods in Minnesota is actively selling THC beverages, hemp-derived. We live in a wild time, y'all. And then there's another event I just came across, which is called Lift. It's also taking place in San Francisco. It's pretty much back to back. I think it's the Cannabis Drinks Expo one weekend and then the following weekend is Lyft. But Lyft has a beverage focus, so I just wanted to mention it. It is a very busy summer for those of us attending conferences. And again, if you'll be out, please let's connect. I would love to meet you and learn about what you're up to. So now for a few rapid fire headlines before we get to today's guest interview. By the way, these links for these news articles will be in the show notes. First up comes from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He is pledging to legalize marijuana and psychedelics. I will believe it when I see it. He is alleging to want to use the tax revenue to fund farms where people recovering from drug addiction can grow organic food. It sounds really nice. His position on drug policy reform was honestly really vague when he first entered the race, but it's quickly coming into focus as he promotes more progressive policies that, I guess in some cases, clearly go beyond that of the current president, Joe Biden. Like I said, would love to see it. Also, I think people are trying to get the attention of voters. So again, I'll believe it when I see it. Next, medical marijuana dispensaries in New Hampshire can now sell their products to cannabis patients from other states and Canada. I'm assuming this is something very similar to reciprocity if you are a medical patient in a legal medical state and another state that you are visiting also has medical cannabis, you could in turn qualify to shop in their market because of your status in your state. And part of this is a little bit finicky because the federal law makes it illegal to cross state or country borders with marijuana, even if the patient has therapeutic certification. But Wednesday, New Hampshire visitors, they can show a medical marijuana card with matching ID and then they can purchase in New Hampshire dispensaries. Not clear if they can pass state lines back to their originating state, but they can at least get reciprocity when they go to New Hampshire. Next, over in Missouri, this is really interesting. They are the testing ground for plain packaging for cannabis products. The state constitution now requires their regulatory body, DHS, to put more rules in place to protect children from accidental consumption and poisoning. Under Missouri's new cannabis regulations, labels and packaging for marijuana-related products must have limited colors and can't appeal to children or resemble candy. Like many states, Missouri has seen an increase in the number of child poisoning cases involving marijuana edibles since REC became legal, according to Jules Weber, who's the director of Missouri's Poison Center. Specifically, for cases of children five and under, it increased from seven cases in 2018 to 125 cases in 2022. 
The Constitution also says that no cannabis facility can sell edible cannabis-infused candy in shapes or packages that are attractive to children or that are easily confused with commercially sold candy that does not contain marijuana. Penalties include fines up to $5,000 and a loss of business license. Also an aside, this is just like a quick headline. I just saw that the company that owns Skittles just settled with a cannabis brand because they were infringing on using their likeness. I don't know how it turned out, but clearly there is a problem to be had. I'm not saying that it needs to go as far as removing certain colors to be used in marketing or packaging or labeling. However, I can see the concern and it'll be interesting. How do we find a middle ground, right? So next up is, according to the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, there is a new national poll stating more than 60% of U.S. voters support legalizing psychedelic therapy. In addition, more than three-quarters of voters, 78%, support making it easier for researchers to study psychedelic substances. Almost half support removing criminal penalties for personal use and possession. These remarkable results are the preview highlights from the first ever Berkeley Psychedelics Survey, a new national benchmark poll tracking public perceptions and attitudes about psychedelics. But how exciting to be in the midst of so much change and uncertainty as we work towards how we can safely take cannabis and psychedelics for that fact to market, which now brings me to today's guest. I am so happy to have Brianna Kilcullen on the podcast. Brianna is passionately building her brand and business, Enact, which she launched in 2019. Prior to starting Enact, she worked in the apparel industry for Prana, a subsidiary of Columbia Sportswear and Under Armour, traveling to 40 plus countries, working in factories on almost every continent. It was that experience that led to her interest in sustainable fibers and manufacturing, which is what brought her to hemp. Brianna moved her business from her home state of Florida to Texas, which is where we got a chance to connect. She's also a member of the Texas Hemp Coalition, so I've had the pleasure of getting to know Brianna and begin to unravel some of the topics we'll be discussing in depth today. Today, we're focusing on the reality of the textile industry, supply chain, and manufacturing, as well as what role hemp plays in it all. So really, can't wait for you to listen. Please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Brianna to the show. I am Brianna Kilcullen. I'm the founder of Enact. Enact is short for an act of kindness, an act of goodwill. We do sustainable bath towels made out of hemp and organic cotton. I discovered hemp in 2015 while working at Prana in the apparel supply chain space. I fell in love with hemp in 2017 when I was in China working and saw the harvesting of the hemp for textiles. And so that has been the application that I've been the most focused on to date. I would say when I lived in California, there was so much focus on marijuana. So I knew people were interested in hemp and mostly in CBD. And I saw a huge opportunity for fiber based off of what I know it can do in my industry and just in the overall industry in the US as well. And so that has been our focus is how do we reintroduce manufacturing back into the U.S. for textiles utilizing hemp as, as the force to create that supply chain infrastructure, as well as creating a better for you product in an undisrupted product category for home goods. And uh, yeah, that's me. I am so excited to have you on the show because again, I think there's a couple of things I want to highlight for the listener, right? So one, you mentioned you're in Austin. Obviously, I'm in Austin as well. So we do have a personal relationship. I've been able to interact with you in person as well as be the recipient of some of the Enact products and towels, which go wonderfully in my wellness sauna space room. I love it. And also just getting to support 
your business from an industry advocacy perspective? Obviously, we can get into it. And so I'm just kind of framing it up. But the textile application, industrial hemp, it's not as prominent in the States. And so obviously want to learn from you kind of like how all those things get connected together. But with all that said, I think touching on what you were highlighting, just cannabis in general is becoming super popular, but people really only see cannabis, I think, very one dimensionally, meaning it's very much on the consumable focused. Maybe you've picked up some hemp rope or something here along the way, making some necklaces. I feel like there's been a version of me in the past that would take like hemp rope and braid it together for a friendship bracelet. You've got hemp seeds, but this idea of hemp as an actual textile is not as popular as it should be, but I will say it's becoming more popular. I'll kind of jump in with this question and thought. I remember getting into the industry, what Restart launched in 2018. And I remember one of the very first videos I came across was this video called like Hemp's 50,000 Uses by Patagonia. And so obviously your experience coming with Prana, it's very clear that there are some businesses that are choosing to elect to use some of these alternative fabrics but would love to just hear from your perspective. What are you observing? Are there more businesses getting involved in hemp textiles and fabric? And maybe a little bit of a zoom out. There's like true products, I think made with hundred percent hemp, but there's also like the blend of fabrics. And so if you can just kind of like dive in and give us a current kind of maybe landscape slash brief history from your observation, working in the industry, working with these these fabrics, working with this product and kind of what you're observing in terms of it being adopted on a bigger scale. Yeah. So I I think as it relates to the larger industry that we're in, I think everyone, when you're bringing a new industry or reintroducing industry back, there's challenges and obstacles and being an early adopter. And I think that the opportunity that I've always seen with hemp and fiber and is that because we're not consuming it and it is just being put on your clothes, there's less connotation around the drugs, the drug component of it. And so for me, it was like, we can move faster to get um, farmers to grow this because people understand hemp rope, they understand a hemp flag, understand hemp clothes. That is like a visual that they are comfortable with as opposed to something that they would have to consume. So there's less regulatory challenges that we're up against in order to bring the infrastructure back. So that was like something that incentivized me personally to say we can, because so we still have people who say, can I get high from utilizing your towel, like your product? And so I think that there's been such a lack of consumer education around the industry as a whole that we try to, we don't want to alienate anyone from experiencing the benefits and attributes of our product. So how do we focus on just saying, this is the best performing fiber on the market. Here's why. And I think that's what I've really learned in business is it's focusing on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how do you solve your customer's problem? And hemp just happens to be the best solution to solving those problems. For me growing up, in Florida, I hate the smell of mildewy bath towels. So I've been always really conscientious over what sustainable natural fibers are on the market and how they're performing. And so I, when I was at Prana, we used a material sustainability index that was created by Nike that ranks fibers from most sustainable to least sustainable in additional to their, in, in addition to their performance attributes. And so when I discovered this, 
this thermometer and saw that hemp was number one, but it was like the least amount that we were utilizing, the smallest amount being used in the total collection. It was a disconnect for me that led me down the rabbit hole of doing the research around legislation and around its history and why and how it wasn't being used as much as I felt like it should be based off of the data. And so that experience or that aha moment is I think what has really just led me down this avenue. And I think I've just been so always inspired and excited by Hemp's underdog energy and history, right? Where it's, wow, this is a really badass plant. And like, it gets so beat up upon and it's like still finding a way to come through. And I think what I've also been experiencing lately is it's like the people who connect with it. It's like, we're, it's connecting all of us in ways in which like we would probably never ever have connected or met. But now because we see something in this and we, there's the attributes that we're connected with, it's opening this larger community. So I think that's been my experience with hemp is just always being attracted to the data around its sustainability and its performance. And then the opportunity to create from the ground up and meet and work with so many people I would never have been able to meet and work with to, to create that vision and bring manufacturing here. So one, I have to acknowledge that it's crazy that consumers really are that uneducated around the application of hemp from a consumable perspective to a physical touch perspective. I'm sure there's even some weird world that I maybe am not super privy to, but I can imagine now based on this conversation of consumers thinking, oh, if I have hemp seeds, you're going to make me high. And so it's just this re-education of a crop that maybe to get into a little bit of the history, especially like from your perspective, just absorbing it and living in it day to day. From my understanding, being in the hemp industry and doing my own research, hemp used to be a very popular crop that was grown. And there's historical attributes to some of the sales on the, the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria that were reflected, or maybe it was the Mayflower. Don't quote me. I'm not a geography major, but something historical, like there are components of our history as a United States that have utilized hemp. And so from my perspective, the real big kind of turning point was the war on drugs and really demonizing cannabis in general and lumping hemp into that. And so that was the removal of it from society. But I'm curious from your perspective, is that really the turning point? Did hemp transition much sooner? Now that I'm talking out loud, I'm also thinking of just like hemp as a crop, right? There's competing entities. You've got the cotton industry, you've got the timber industry and hemp being this like multifaceted plant that can have applications. Like I can imagine that those industries were also threatened by hemp's opportunity. And so it's just, I want to frame it up. Like how long has, like how long was hemp maybe utilized? And at what point did hemp stop being utilized that now you're in a position where you and your business are trying to bring hemp back to United States that's crazy that it's the number one most sustainable fiber and yet people aren't using it. And so I want to get to like, why are people not using it if it's so glaringly popular and sustainable? Yeah, I think 1937, that was where we had the manufacturing and then it was made illegal, but we allowed it to be imported. And so we were importing. And what's interesting is we're like Japan was one of our number one importers and then World War II and Pearl Harbor happened. So then we started 
um, manufacturing again in the U.S. during World War II. And then once the war ended, then we went back. So it's been decades and decades where we've lost an infrastructure or lost a supply chain. And I think that to your point, the fear, like cotton industry, the paper industry, the oil industry, like it is such a potent plan and versatile that it does threaten a lot of different industries. And I think that has been my, what I've deducted has been why it was made illegal and lumped in under marijuana or connected to marijuana in that way. So I think with that infrastructure leaving, that was a driver in the US. But then I think for the textile industry specifically, it was really NAFTA that that took all textiles. So even though hemp left in 1937, we still were manufacturing clothes in the US. And then when I think it's 1990, 1991, NAFTA went into effect, we just lost that industry completely. So we've not only lost hemp for fiber, we've lost the actual manufacturing for all textiles in this country. And so I think those are the questions that like I've started to ask or I've been asking, like, why did this go away? And like, where is it at? And it's just a very deregulated industry that usually it benefits off of and profits off of countries that don't have any labor laws or minimum wages. And so it allows for product to be made and then imported in here and sold at XYZ prices. And then if it doesn't sell, like it's incinerated or goes to the landfill and there's just no regulation. So like where I see hemp falling into this place is like, we have a linear supply chain that's deregulated, but with hemp, we have the opportunity to show what that process actually should look like that it doesn't currently operate under. And that's what drives me and the vision and pushes me is because of the social and environmental impact of the current industry. And that, I guess, maybe that is putting too much on hemp that I think hemp could be able to say, here's how it's currently being done, but we're going to show you how it should be done and utilize hemp to create that, to set, to propel that industry forward. That's the space I like to play in. But I think with hemp, like, in the hemp space, everyone thinks it's so buzzy and, oh, I'm in this and I'm doing that. But it's, again, people only care how you're solving their problems and like your knowledge and your ability to understand what that problem even is. And so for me, it's, yeah, there's amazing other opportunities for hempcrete and other industrial uses. However, my background is not in that, those industries. So this is what I know. This is how I know how to impact it. And I'm very confident in it because I've spent my career in it. So I think that sometimes people get really wanting to do everything in him and not remembering basic business principles and also just like their own expertise in it. And I think a lot of people get taken advantage of, or a lot of customers are getting taken advantage of because insert word, it's crypto, like insert buzzy word. And everyone's like, oh, there's my money. Take it all. <laughs> the amount of hemp candles, hemp pillows. Maybe you're getting into the fringe like CBD pillows, CBD candles. I think there's like a weird, is there actually cannabinoids in it? And then I was, I went to some show and they had a candle and I was like, that's dumb. But they said you're supposed to heat the liquid up. So sorry if this is your business and you're listening, heat the liquid up and like pour it on your skin and then it turns into a topical. I was like, okay, now I'm being sold, but just, 
cannabis or hemp or whatever in the candle or on the fabric, like I'm lost on that. So maybe to the detriment of the consumer, like you're highlighting, can this make me high? I think maybe there are some consumers who would very much love to lay on a a knacked towel and feel the benefits of consuming the product. But unfortunately, that's just not how I think it works. Again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe some scientists are going to drop me some knowledge bombs. But I thought you said something really interesting about NAFTA, just the positioning of, again, I think to people who are maybe not as close to it or not as involved, like your background, obviously like your business now, this is very front and center for you. So I appreciate you sharing this perspective because it's super important and critical for us just to understand like the whole landscape and also the history, because I think you have to understand the history to understand where you're going. And I didn't fully realize before you said it, not only was hemp being demonized with cannabis, but you're also losing out on just the manufacturing aspect. So that kind of presents an issue for me of, It's one thing to source hemp in the States and make products, but it's another thing to grow the hemp in the States to make products. So maybe you can talk a little bit about sourcing. I have some understanding. Again, I've had a couple guests on who have talked about just the reality. Is hemp being grown industrially for fiber in the States? If not, where is it predominantly being grown? I have some ideas in my head just from what I think I know, but obviously like you're living it, eating it, breathing it. And so just want to like put it out there of the reality. Again, it's one thing to like want to manufacture in the States, but it's another thing to like source where these products are coming from or where this raw material is coming from. So on the raw material side, where are you sourcing hemp from? Who are some of the leaders dominating? And is that something that America could get back to. Yeah, I think what I've experienced in the hemp space of why it hasn't been grown out of the gate is like the ROI is everyone is looking at what is the, what raw material sells at the highest price point, which has been CBD. So everyone's focused on that, but I think that they lose sight of what is actually, what's the TAM? What are the actual, like all the total addressable markets that one can sell into? And with fiber, that's a $1 trillion TAM to be sold raw materials. So I think that is where it might, the price might not be as much as CBD, but the market is more scalable. So that's what we like to communicate is it's a it's an opportunity of supply chain resiliency, national defense, as well as scalable markets at a lower price point that is where we need to be investing in. And because of NAFTA and because of other trade agreements that have pushed this industry out, it now, the way that it operates is if it comes back in its current model, it's not profitable and it's not going to be able to compete on the scale of other products. No one is going to pay $150 for a towel. So like for us, the components that we're up against, if I had a magic wand, would be being able to have investment in R&D and innovation on machinery to make our products so that it can operate here and compete with the pricing model, pricing that consumers have become accustomed to paying for. The challenges in creating that infrastructure is getting everyone to think about larger markets outside of CPD and that what those RIs look like and educating on that. And I don't know why the textile industry just, it's, I don't know. I've thought about this a million times. Like, how does it go under the radar? How do so many people not have any clue about where their clothes are made and has all this deregulation? 
because we're all wearing clothes every day. So it's not like what people are like, oh, I don't really like drive that car. It's no, like we literally all wear the same clothes every day. And the only thing I can think of is just maybe because of until people start seeing dumps and like landfill in their everyday life, will they want to do something about it and realize how bad, like I just had a friend move and she's like, yeah, we could, the dump was like really bad. And they're like, well-to-do couple, have a great home. And she was like, no, it just started impacting our life. So we had to move houses. And I was like, is that what Americans need is for you to actually see the impact of this industry in front of you? And then you'll start to regulate it and ask questions and want to see this infrastructure occur. I don't know. I don't know. Or Sheen, you know what happened with Sheen? Fast fashion. Fast fashion. What is it? Or we had Rana Plaza. That was a big tipping point. In 2014 in Bangladesh, when five, 6,000 garment workers lost their lives in a factory fire. And then that kind of set a lot of groups and some legislation. Europe's really ahead. Europe is like where I would hope US can get to, where it is actually passing legislation to prevent certain materials, certain chemicals from coming in. In the US, we've started to see with the Uyghurs that certain containers are stopped from China if cotton is made in Western China. So there's been a little bit, but like nothing and not enough to like have the attention and the awareness. So I don't know how I was planted in this industry because like I walked into it, like I didn't think I'd be in textiles. I have a human rights background. Like I am corporate social responsibility and I thought I'd be doing that for the oil industry. And I ended up in textiles at Under Armour in Baltimore. And then I was like, oh, this is wild. Like I'm going home to Thanksgiving holiday and nobody's ever been to a factory. Nobody has any idea about what I'm talking about, what trip I was just on. So I guess I should pick up the torch and talk about it and educate. And so I really have fallen into it, but I don't have a fashion background, do not have textiles whatsoever. I just was like, wow, this industry needs help and I'm going to figure this out. But yeah, I think that's how I've alchemized my background and my experiences and how I've understand, been able to understand why things have gotten to the way that they are. And then how, you know, with hemp, I helped pass legislation. And that was like very eye-opening in Florida to see like the key players of, yeah, whoever has money to lobby, like their product and their infrastructure is what gets invested in and the opportunity. And so it's just been very eye-opening to see all of the different things and people who have created the spaces and which we now operate in. But I think some of them are still scared about hemp. Like they're still, they have their own like childhood trauma around like getting like smoking weed or something like that. And so there's still like, I allows, I think for people like you and I to move fast in the space because there's still like bigger companies that don't want to touch it. And are like all the executives are like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And I think it allows the space for innovation and disruption to occur. At least that's what I tell myself. No, I would agree with that. I think it's one of those things you just, for better or worse, you wake up when you wake up and you become aware. And from your personal perspective, it's, I have to do something about this. I have to speak up. Like you said, pick the torch up and and try to, I've been saying, eat the elephant. How do you eat an elephant? Like one bite at a time. And so it can seem really overwhelming, especially in the face of trying to I don't even think it's just disrupt like the hemp industry or like the hemp fiber textiles, but to your point, the fashion and textiles industry, like in general, we have become, I think, really complacent 
just trusting the government. Oh, the government took all this and set up these trade laws and we're just going to agree to agree and not ask questions of how these products are made, manufactured, who's doing the manufacturing and just like connecting those supply chain gaps. And so obviously I think hemp coming out being really disruptive for multiple reasons. This I think is getting a little bit more of attention in a great way. It's just hard to reconcile it. I think against the cultivator, maybe growing it. So I wanted to kind of follow up slash ask a supplementary question. One, are there specific countries that you're seeing are dominating producing hemp? Like I'm aware, I'm going to say China for sure. I'm going to say India for sure. I've even heard Russia. Is there one that is taking more precedent or opportunity over? And then just like dumb question, amnesty, again, from my very limited knowledge. I understand growing hemp for fiber is potentially different than growing hemp for consumables or CBD. So just going off of your point of trying to get these farmers to understand, hey, you're trying to get the best price for your crop. Is it really the same crop or would they have to grow a completely different crop? And so then a follow-up to that is, is it the, do we need the cultivation or do we need the manufacturing or do we need both for it to be successful? Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So current supply chain, mostly China, I would say like, even if you see something that says made in US or made in Europe or made in India, the hemp is still coming from China. It's just being spun in their facility. So the source of the raw material is then being taken to another country to be manufactured and actually turned into your garment. That is very sneaky. And so as it relates to our current content label, like if you look at your stuff, it will say made in Pakistan or made in India, but you have no idea where all of those raw materials came from. Like they have their own country of origin. Yeah, that's, I love supply chain tracing. That's my, I can just, I can go hard in the paint on that one. Thank you. you. We need that. Yeah. Just give me your product. Give me any product. It doesn't need to be textile. And I will just, I'll get the bill of materials and I will trace every single like transaction point that material has gone through in every location to get to the like raw source or like where it was actually extracted. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here, and I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. 
head to researchcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of 2B Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. Thank you. Thank you. Seriously. I think those are really interesting conversations, right, to be unpacking, because again, I think people just really assume, at least the way I did, I'm like, yeah, duh, like you grow the hemp and then you take the hemp to the factory and then they turn that into fiber and then they sew and make my shirt right then and there, not even really comprehending the multiple steps that are going in the hands and the transactions that are happening to actually take that raw material from a plant, a hemp plant, and actually turn it into a towel or a t-shirt or a pair of socks or even a tote bag, right? It's wild. And again, like I didn't know until I experienced it. And I was in a factory in El Salvador and they were like the fabrics coming from Taiwan. I was like, oh, is it made in Taiwan? No, the polyester came from China. The cotton came from India. It was just the fabric was done in and knitted in Taiwan. Okay, then where in China did that come from? Oh, actually it came from that. And you just keep going back and back and back. And you're like, wow, so many people have been a part of this process that it is economically asinine and insane that we like we have the price point on it that we do. Because how is that feasibly possible with like freight and labor and everything? It's not. Volume, so- scale, and dominating, I guess. They're just doing so much that we they are. They're pumping out so many pieces that we don't even realize. And obviously the quality is degrading these days more and more. So it's like we're feeding the beast, unfortunately, that we want to get out from it's- under. Yeah. This might be an unpopular opinion, hot take, whatever I have. Let's on. go. Okay. I don't think we need more products. Like I think everyone needs to be solving problems. And I think like in the textile space, everyone, I don't think we need more apparel brands. I think we're done. I'm like, I think everything that's out there needs to be out there. I don't think anyone should leave school and be like, I need to create a new apparel brand. That's just not a need for society at this point. There's a surplus. We have a problem with consumerism, right? And this need to be sold. I'm working on it at just like a basic shade at individual level. My husband Sage and I, we are trying to put spending rules in place, like no shopping for, for me, maybe it's 30 days. It really should be like for the next year. And it's been an interesting just exercise because when I want to go grab something, I'm now recognizing why do I need that? Do I really need another pair of black yoga pants? The answer is no, but it feels good to buy something trendy, even to your point of acknowledging, I don't know these brands. It's crazy as a marketer. I am the most aware that I'm being marketed to. And I'm also the most susceptible because marketing is that good. Sometimes it's, man, you put a different label and you told me that it's better quality, not maybe realizing that's a marketing label claim to your point and observation. Maybe it is being made in America, but where did all those other raw materials come from that are producing that garment. And again, whose hands did it have to touch? So it's very unsettling, I think, to recognize this. Maybe in the same vein, I would love your thoughts, especially talking about minimum wage workers and obviously like harsh working conditions and the implications that it has on certain industries like the textile industry. I have heard that similar to CBD, let's follow along this analogy. 
CBD is not all made equal, right? Like the cannabis plant is a multifaceted plant. And depending on if you grow it outside versus inside, it can produce different traits that will come out in a plant. And so my understanding is not all CBD is made equal, depending on how you extract it, how you source it, how you grow it, package it, bottle it, whatever, market it certainly. The same applies to hemp textiles. Like I think this started becoming aware for me. I got sent and I won't have, I won't name the name of the company, but I I think they're doing some interesting stuff. They reached out, they said, Hey, we make hemp shirts in America, but we are sourcing our hemp from China and India, but they like overly were communicative. Oh, don't worry. Our working conditions are the best. We take care of our employees. They go home and have a nice lunch. Like they're treated wonderfully. Therefore, you should have comfort knowing that our products are made with intention. And I think it's a really interesting conversation because on one end, people are wanting to use hemp for sustainability reasons, but and maybe it's not just hemp, right? It's the textile and fabric industry in general, but there's so much of an underbelly to that industry. So it's like on one end, hey, great, we're using hemp, but how did we get the freaking hemp to even put in the product? And so similarly, it's not all, just because you're wearing a hemp shirt doesn't mean that you are, I guess, helping the problem. Maybe that's my hot take. I think sometimes wearing a hemp shirt from a poor manufacturer or someone who doesn't have integrity with the supply chain could be putting bad hemp products into the marketplace and just wanted to run that by you if I'm on base or if that makes sense. Because again, I think it's one thing to say, oh, I'm wearing a fully hemp outfit. Look, I support hemp. I want hemp to be the fabric and the textile that everybody is working with in the future. But if you're getting it from someone who really isn't taking care of their employees, like how does that outweigh the sustainability or the use of hemp? Totally. Greenwashing is just such a big thing that people again, piggyback off of a word and then expect no one to call them out and have to back it up. I think that answering your previous question around hemp and the structure and the seed and how to grow and what that looks like, like, I think that for me, what some people said, you shouldn't even be making product if you're making it in China, don't even exist in the market space. And like my thought process is what people believe when they see. So So let's make it with a supply chain infrastructure that exists. And then let's talk about what our vision is. And I think that's like what I would always do when looking at a company is to know what is their vision and then what is their reality? And then how are they bridging the gap? And that's what we communicate to our customers. If we could provide local supply chain infrastructure and make this today, we would. It's not that we're choosing not to, it just doesn't exist. So if it doesn't exist, don't knock us for that when we're openly telling you that's what we're doing, but that only moves when there's market demand and in showing opportunity that this people want to see this type of product, which means you have to work with us where it currently exists. That's how we phrase it. And so farmers and anyone, investors, like they need to see the market opportunity. So that's therefore like we manufacture with supply chain partners that have our values I personally went and audited the factory and met the factory owner and looked at the conditions. And we filmed all of that for a Kickstarter. We're very open about supply chain transparency. And that's like what we want to continue to do. I think that as a, but as there is like fiber or like seed, well, there is just no transparency. Like even when I talk to farmers, I'm like, how are you getting seed? What are you doing? 
And it is the wild west over like who knows who and go and grab it. And it's, I try to explain and it. It's not like you can go, you go to Home Depot. You can say, I want to grow sunflowers. I want to grow roses. Here's the seed. And you like know what the outcome is going to be. But with hemp, I'm like the USDA lost all of our seed bank. So it's like for hemp. So, you know, who is the seed bank? Who is the trusted authority that has XYZ amount of seeds. And this is the outcome you should expect based off of that. And I think Doug Fine's Hemp Bound has been like that book, the Bible for hemp of, oh my gosh, there's a seed that can do everything and provide all of these different end uses. But maybe it's like feral growing in Colorado or it's like in Idaho. And you're like, what? Do we just all go on scavenger hunts and go round up the seed and figure it out? Are people cloning? What are people doing? So I think that because everyone's been so obsessed with the ROI on CBD, hemp fiber and the seed bank has been largely left alone. So the process in which that is happening, like probably should be filmed and documentaries should be made on it because it is very unregulated in what I've experienced and seen. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things I joke, but I'm also being serious, right? Where if you talk to anybody who's like, on cultivating cannabis. It is not just a weed. It doesn't grow anywhere. There's obviously certain climate conditions that make it better. And certainly that's on the consumable side. But on the other end, it's a weed. It's called weed for a reason. I think to your point, it can grow feral in some of these certain climates and situations. It is wild though, just how clumsy and silly the United States government is with their handling of really important materials. I don't know, a seed bank for something that I just, I gotta believe, man, I'm a little bit on the conspiracy train these days. I've been watching a lot of, oh, have we found Atlantis? Like, where's this? I'm watching this new thing on Netflix talking about like this lost pyramid. It's, do we really, did we really lose the pyramid or do you know, and you're just hiding it from us? And it's like a fun game that we now have to like unpack and uncover. People are making YouTubes and Netflix documentaries about it. But nonetheless, it's obviously a very important conversation that again, even just talking to you and knowing you and being a little bit more aware, just because I feel like I'm in this industry to the extent that I, not to the extent of the fiber side, but industrial side, but I try to support it as much as I can. I try to be aware as much as I can. And I'm learning so many new things because damn, like that's crazy. Just even the amount of, again, hands that can touch between a product is ultimately ending up back in our hands here in the States to be sold. I now want to ask you, how do we bring it home? What does that look like for it in Texas? Are you looking for cultivators to take chances growing industrial hemp? Is industrial hemp being grown at a scale that could supply your needs and supply chain? Are there other companies who are both maybe on the hemp side? And I, again, I know a little bit of these answers because some of them are our friends and we're paying attention to it pretty closely. But for the listeners, are there other companies in the industrial side of hemp that you're working with? Are there also other, like Patagonia always comes to mind just because I think they have such a brand recognition and they're like, yes, let's use hemp as a fiber. And to your point too, maybe it's not the most perfect sourcing, but it's sourcing with intention and trying to get it again, back to the States. So what do we need? Do we need cultivators? Do we need manufacturing infrastructure? Do we need all of the above? What's our best shot? Should it just be cleaning up the supply chain overseas and just letting overseas have it and just bringing a lot more of the manufacturing back to the States? Like what is your observation of the situation presently here in the United States 
sourcing, manufacturing, processing, industrial hemp for fiber, as well as what do you want to see and what are you working on to see happen here? Yes, we need all of it. We need to have, we need farmers who know how to grow. We need investors who want to invest in this industry. We need process, we need innovators who can actually, and engineers who want to innovate on the machinery and the equipment. So I think the first though, it starts with investors saying we will finance this because it's not an operation where one person can financially do it. It's going to take a lot of expertise. So for us having as many people as possible or having the investor say, I will cut a check for 5 million. I will cut a check for this. And then being able, like, I love my friend Tyler in North Carolina. He has a thing called one acre exchange and he's just, he grows one acre of hemp and the one acre of hemp he's, I'm going to create equipment in that can fit in the back of a pickup truck. And that like pickup truck allows for a farmer to grow one acre, process it and make it. And it's like simple. Very cool. Yeah. And that's, I'm just attracted to simplicity. And I think everyone tries to make it like super complicated, but I would just like to say, okay, or my vision is how do we just grow hemp here in Texas, find the best partner who knows how to grow it, process it, and then make that into a product and figure that out with the least amount of resources and innovate. And then we can scale that. But I think the first step is really these institutional investors and family foundations stepping forward and realizing the job creation, supply chain resiliency, and climate crisis being the main drivers for why this is so important. And that's like, I explained that I was at a military event in the government. And I said, does anyone know that less than 1% of textile production is done in the US? And nobody knew. And I was like, does anyone know that over 50% of global textile production is done in China? Nobody knew. And one of the guys in the armies, that seems like a supply chain risk for us based upon our current trade relations with China. And I was like, yeah, no shit. But it's everyone's so focused, right, on getting to Mars and like having their crypto, whatever, and having warfare and having all of this like innovation done, VR and metaverse, then no one's like thinking about the fact of like our current relations and our current industries and the impact that has. And that's the type of stuff that I hope that I can speak to and or continue to speak to and connect the dots around what we're doing. And I feel like the U.S. is, oh, we'll figure it out when we have to. But it's like, why? Why, when we see the impact of the climate crisis, when we see the impact of our current relations, why would you wait? Instead, we can focus today on building and creating that. So I don't know what that incentive and driver is that pushes investors to to change. But I think with the climate, we know that's there. And I think supply chain resiliency is a new topic for them, but it's like a lot of people still look as investors or as new industries as how do I sell, how do I invest in this and then sell as quick as possible in five to 10 years. Whereas like the play that we're making, it might not be that. It might be like an IPO where we're just, you don't want to sell it. You want to continue to build it, but you obviously want to provide return back to everyone who's a part of it. But it's not something that can just, we wouldn't build, sell it to another country and want it to leave. So I think those are the types of conversations we're having and thinking about what does that, who are all the people needed? What do they need to get to be incentivized to be a part of this? 
And then how do we build that from there? That's how I've thought of it. No, that makes sense. I think it's one of those things too that like it's getting momentum. Again, I think you're seeing a lot of players, I don't want to say enter the market, but start to incorporate. Like I feel like occasionally I'll come across when I'm reading labels, oh, this has a blend of hemp in it. Okay, so it's becoming something that is accessible. But to your point of setting up infrastructure that can be proven out, that's really cool to hear about that guy up in North Carolina trying to solve it from a cultivator perspective, like how do you incentivize that farmer to be in control of what they're producing and actually process it? Because that's, as I know, and as I know, that's like half the battle is like, hey, great, you grew it, but now how do I process it? And I think one of the things that we're observing, obviously you are a member of the Texas Hemp Coalition. I am also a member of it. And one of the conversations that we try to have on the industrial side is supporting not only the cultivation, but that processing. And so I remember some stat, it's again, don't quote me on it, but it has to be like 50 miles from the source of cultivation. It's not like you can have a processor in Florida if you're cultivating in Oregon, right? Like you need that processor to be closer to proximity of where that cultivation is happening. And because I think using Texas as an example, we got sold as a state. I say the collective, we, these farmers, a lot of them are our friends. They got sold on this dream. Hey, grow hemp. It's industrial. It's legal. Oh, wait, there's no money in the industrial. I'm going to pivot and grow for consumables. And I think you had a lot of people who are left kind of out in the cold trying to realize that it's a little bit of a race to the bottom. I shouldn't say a little bit. It's a lot of a race to the bottom. We're constantly introducing different cannabinoids, especially in the hemp side of the space. So it's like, you're just trying to constantly keep up versus I think what you're articulating and painting a picture of is like a much bigger, I don't want to say like, it's more or less important, definitely probably more important from your perspective of, no, this is a big deal. And like, we need to pay the fuck attention to this. But for all of us on the consumable side, it's yes, I get it. And my heart goes out to the industrial side. So with that, do you see cannabis's fight towards legalization helping? Do you see the legalization of hemp helping? I think there's one side of the coin of yes, because it's now being talked about. It's legal to grow. You can choose to grow for industrial. Or do you think it's hurting where the attention is getting distracted or divided amongst, what do I do now? It's, do I invest in consumables for the quick win or buzz? Or do I invest in industrial for the long-term security of, of supply chain? Yeah. I think it's the more that we destigmatize cannabis, I think the more that we all win and the more it's, I was reading a book about how, how like when coffee was first introduced, they were like, this is a drug, nobody use it. And everyone was so afraid of it. And it was like, it caused all of this, all of this conflict. And I think that's like with hemp and is yeah, who's on board, who's not on board, what's happening. So I think the more that we like destigmatize it and the more that we have like support by the government and like the use of it in military and different places like that we all will benefit from that but i think to your point around there's no money industrial hemp i think it's because the processing infrastructure doesn't exist so farmers are like you can grow up but now you don't have anywhere to sell it to to process it and i think that's the gap that is the most important is once we create that then everyone will be able to sell it and they should like have great productivity because you don't have to, everything grows on top of each other. Hemp fiber is 10 feet tall. Like it's doesn't need to be spaced out. Like it's a weed, it's a bunch of weeds growing in one acre. So 
I think that's what's needed. It's just the funding of that to get to that place. But I think what's, I don't know. I just, I love hemp. Like I have a hundred percent hemp linen sheets that I just, or not linen, but yeah, they look, they feel like linen. And I love them. And I like, I use hemp in like everywhere. Like I test products out. And if it doesn't work, then I'm like, this isn't something we should invest in. But I think I'm more of the mindset of does, what are the problems? Are the solutions better than what are the current solutions that already exist? And then how do we build businesses and infrastructures to support that? Because if it provides more value than what's currently provided, then I think the numbers will always, you can find the way to make the numbers work. That's my theory because more value, who doesn't want more value out of anything in your life? And that's really what we're working on. But I I think here in Texas, we just have to, in Austin specifically, it's just fairly focused on military and the startup space and tech and metaverse. So I think our other challenge in educating, which is why we're doing this event with Patagonia next month at the Paramount Theater is to educate on our industry and for people to see, hey, we know you think these are the sexy things, but here's where you're sleeping out on is like this opportunity because there's people who want to, who will do the work to make it happen. And that's what you want to invest in anyways, are people who are fired up to see something happen, not just the industry you hear everyone investing in. But that's no, my hot. No, it's a great hot take. It must be really nice to, I, and I can relate to this to some extent, right? It's like you're, you feel like you're screaming in a cave and no one's hearing you and you're alone. And it's really nice when you can start to see other partners and collaborators and people who have maybe a very similar North Star to you to help come and bolster it. And so I'm glad you mentioned your event with Patagonia because, again, obviously they have really big brand recognition and have made a really big stride to be very public about their hemp use and incorporation and education. And so I think it's very admirable what you're doing. I know it needs to happen. I I don't know how it's going to go from A to Z, but I love watching you and learning from you and supporting you and being a small platform of, hey, let's talk about this stuff because it really does impact all of us, whether you consume cannabis or not, whether we even give hemp the time of day or not. The problem that you are trying to solve is much bigger than hemp. Hemp just happens to be one of the tools that can help empower and bring some of that back to the United States. And so it's really cool to learn that from you. Final thoughts, anything you want to share that you didn't share? I always love to end on a high note. Obviously, you did mention your event. I know that's really exciting that you're working towards. And you said next month, but I'm pretty sure it's this month. Oh, this month. Oh, my God. We're in July. <laughs> it's very. Oh the my god! Next month is August, girl. I've been saying that. I know. And Jillian, who's doing our event, she's giving this month. And I was like, oh, yeah, Monday, July 17th, 6 p.m. Tickets are at the Paramount. But the closing thoughts I would have is Avon Chenard in his book, Let My People Go Surfing. He says at the very end, the future he believes is on-demand manufacturing as close as possible to the sales channels you sell to. And I genuinely believe that across the board for not just textiles, but food for everything. And I think you know, the vision for Enact and what we're doing. And I appreciate your support and just how you're like, I hold space for you're like, I, this isn't the industry. I don't completely understand, but like, I see you girl and you're like doing it. But I think that I'm a big fan of the alchemist and I believe we all have experiences and we all are here and we have a purpose. And I do believe this is my purpose at this point in my life is really on connecting the dots of being in this industry and making it better 
And that's what I'm focused on and that vision, because I think that I want to leave the world a better place based off of the things that I've seen. And I think that this is what that looks like, even though it's uncomfortable and it's not maybe what people know or have been to or understand or can connect with, but it's like what I know. And I think at some point it will make sense. I pray that it will. But in the meantime, you just, you connect with people like yourself and Sage who are like waking up every day and doing things and following the path and making things lighter than bringing more love and light than what was there. And I think that's all we can do. So I guess that would be my parting words is taking your, whatever your, that act looks like for you to just realize where you are, where you're supposed to be, and then continuing to follow that path. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt.